I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror, cult, exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Welcome back to Astro Radio Z, folks. No more ninjas to be found. Only some more sleazy shot on video horror films here on the show. And tonight we're going to be talking about the surreal, weird fucking movie by Charles Pinion, Red Spirit Lake, made in 1993. Older than a witch's... uh...
on over here and give sweet little Shirley a big old kiss. We're talking about shot on video horror films here tonight, and uh, you know, Mr. Mark the Movie Man was going to show up. He's my right hand man in this adventure we've been going on over the course of the last year, trying to drudge the depths of shot on video horror. Mark the Movie Man, thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having me. Always a fun adventure, and this one, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. I kind of figured you were going to have a rough time with this one tonight, um, as this is far more of an art house shot on video film than any that we have encountered so far. I think maybe the closest we've come to this has been Shattered Dead mm-hmm. so far, but nothing as underground and out there as Red Spirit Lake. And who would I bring on? Other than Mark the Movie Man to talk about something like this, of course, Mr. Gonzarific himself, Andrew Shearer. How you doing, sir? Hey, I am fantabulous, and it is an honor to be on this thing as Red Spirit Lake uh, and the films of those films of Charles Opinion and uh, everything before it. Yeah, they mean a lot to me, and they have a lot to do with. Well, I'll say this. Uh, Charles Pinion movies have everything to do with my distribution model. I'll just say that so we can get to that whenever we get to it. But this is a big deal for me. So thank you. Of anybody that I thought could come on and actually speak to this with any depth and actual appreciation for what Charles Pinion came from in the kind of movies that he made. And he's only made four. I mean, he's made a ton of shorts, but feature films that we could sit and discuss. There are four of them. Um, I've always thought of you. Obviously, I think hey. I think the Gonzarific model and what Charles Pinion had gone for, not only just as you had kind of said the distribution model, but just kind of the spirit behind the movies that he had made, the kind of reverence, uh, the predilection for transgression and um, the fact that there's a whole troop of people that kind of were like a com- uh, like a family, almost like when we were talking about with um the last year or two when we were talking about john waters and all that stuff um i've always thought of you when i thought of this kind of stuff like charles pinion like when was the first time you ever saw one of his flicks this would be um this would have been in the 90s um i was a reader of film threat magazine and film threat uh started to release like some uh some you know underground movies on its own vhs label so uh, I watched like um, the hardcore collection, Richard Kern's movies. I watched uh, that movie Red with Lawrence Tierney. Um, I was seeing like, and I don't know if this was theirs or not. I saw uh, Nick Zed, Geek Maggot Bingo, and um, They Eat Scum. Uh, and then I saw, yeah, Red Spirit Lake was the first one that I saw. And uh, I was just like, God, I love this. I still was new to seeing movies that were shot on videotape, you know? And so I was like, you know, when you see something shot on video, you're like, dude, I could get a video camera. I could film something that looks like that. You know, it's very inspiring. I And I loved it too. I love the, um, 
you know, because I was a fan of John Waters, but you know, John Waters stopped at a certain point and decided, like, dude, if I'm going to make some money, I need to stop making these weird shit. You know, I need to do, you know, so right around the time when John Waters started to do, like, polyester was when uh, the transgressive film thing started and Pinion acted in some of those, but he started doing his thing right around when that was over, you know? So it's just kind of like this timeline, right? And um, I wanted to, I knew I was like, I want to keep it going. I'd like to throw my hat in there, you know, if I can. It's funny. I mean, if you go and try to search up more knowledge about Charles Pinion, you go back, he's always tied to the cinema transgression movement in Nick Zed in films like that. And I, I had come across an interview a while back where he had kind of went through the timeline of how he came to make uh, Red Spirit Lake. And, you know, he was a he was a film student that was more into art house film. And uh, he was always a person that just wanted to make film, but didn't like the mechanization behind having to deal with um, celluloid. And when uh, video came around, it it seemed like a much more easily accessible um, thing for him to grasp and just get out there and start making film because let's be honest, film costs money. And to make films like uh, Red Spirit Lake, where you have a guy getting killed by via fisting by a dead woman, uh, <laughs> not necessarily going to make a ton of money off of that. <laughs> so, so he obviously had predilection for wanting to push boundaries and being having um, a format like video to be able to just go out there and shoot was attractive to him and. One of the things that he always gets tied to this movement, the cinema of transgression, which Nick Zed was one of the the four founders of this movement, the short lived movement, which uh, tended to emphasize pushing boundaries via sexuality and violence and just anything that was on screen, just kind of pushing the limits and not having really any limits as to what was shown and just making a movie in any way, shape or form possible. Now, the first time that supposedly (laughs) they had met, Nick Zed had given uh, Charles Pinion a, a review of his first film, Twisted Issues. And said, I hated everything about this movie. <laughs> this, <laughs> this movie was garbage. I hated the acting. I hated the craft. Terrible movie. And in true Gonzarific style, and I know you probably know this already, Andrew, Charles Pinion took that as the tag quote, the poll quote for Twisted Issues and sold it yeah. as that. And eventually, Nick Zed liked that so much, they became buds and started collaborating together. And Pinion was in his movies and vice versa and all this stuff. I mean, does a lot of that um, aesthetic and a lot of that kind of like irreverence towards wanting to present yourself as, you know, better than everybody else, which seems to be the case with most cinema. Like you always have to have poll quotes that make that blow you and make you sound like you're an amazing artist every single time. Did you kind of get that from Charles Pinion? I mean, is that where a lot of that's coming from with Gonzarific stuff? Yeah. I mean, I just, he was, he was crazy. Cause like, you know, I, I wanted to buy his movies. And so I looked to where I would buy them. You just buy them from him. And then he found out that I made movies too. And he's like, Oh, don't buy my movies. Let's trade. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 
So I get his movies in the mail and they're just like mine. They're made by hand. They're burnt by him. The covers are printed by him. The lettering's done by him. He owns all of his own stuff. I'm like, it made me feel so much better about the way I was doing stuff, you know, because he would get shit from shooting on video in the 90s, especially in probably early 2000s too, because they weren't real movies. They weren't on film. And I always had a complex about the quality of what I was shooting on. You you know, you see a person like that and you admire their work and then all of a sudden they're all, they're nice and <laughs> they treat you like a, like a peer or whatever. I mean, that you want to talk about like incentive, you know, I mean, it's so the opposite of what you thought it would be like people being competing and being like, oh, I did that first. And, you know, things like that. Uh, none of that, man. None of that it was great. Now, Mark, this is your first experience with this kind of stuff. I Like we had said before, we had kind of talked about we've we've sat and watched a lot of the heavy hitters in the shot on video genre. Now we're moving into the far more underground aspects of shot on video film and filmmakers and things of that nature. Have you ever come across something like Red Spirit Lake before, Mark? Can't say that I have. <laughs> I Yeah, not this surreal. No, I mean, I, there's there's a film that always stuck out to me that I always thought was I didn't get when I was younger and I watched it again recently and i kind of got it more had a fantasy theme to it it wasn't anything like this really but i believe it was shot on video it's called skullduggery um but this yeah i don't think i've really watched to uh, anything quite like this uh deep of art house film close but not quite in this way (laughs) so Regardless of like the let's not go into um, details on the plot or anything like how would you describe as a newcomer to this type of underground film? How would you describe this movie like like just how it's made and how it's presented? I mean, is there anything you can even remotely relate this to? Not really. I mean, it has a, I will say probably the closest thing is maybe some Euro horror that I've watched in some respects. Um, the elements and you can see some influences, I think, in here from from uh, like uh, late 70s Euro horror, you know. Uh, the, the, Are you thinking like uh, Jean Rolin and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah. Uh, along those lines i haven't watched much of that either i haven't ventured too much out but i've i've dabbled into a couple of those films in that and you know and yeah it's it's a unique experience it's probably closest to that it had it had that european feel as far as the way it was paced the uh some of the imagery and use of colors and such that they had in here um but that's the closest but that's just scraping the surface really uh, it, it is a unique presentation of what some people consider true art house. And I dug it. That's interesting. I, I kind of got while we were you because you always text me back and forth whenever we start watching some of this weirder shit. Um, kind of got the impression that you were, <laughs> you were bewildered by this movie as you were watching it. I was at first. I was a bit bewildered at first. I mean, I was digging it, but I'm like. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> going, 
man, she really sweats a lot. Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people. Sweat. Okay, well, let's let's but, hold off a second. Sorry. Let's not get too but, deep into no. it too quickly um, here. But <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I mean, let's let's pull those let's pull those two fingers out. We'll, we'll pull those before two we go fingers out before we go with the fist. But um, <laughs> no, I I I was digging it. I mean, yeah, at the beginning, I was like, "What the hell, riffraff looking guy? You gotta, you know." A guy in here, you know, who looks like he could use a burger, you know, uh, <laughs> this blonde guy who, who count his ribs like, holy crap, man, eat a, here's a burger or something. Um, but at the same time, I'm digging the story, the surrealness. I always like films that challenge me. What I found interesting with this film is that as surreal and out there and outrageous as this film is, it still has a rather at its base a core coherent narrative to it you, there is a story there there is a beginning middle and end there's actually a a story that carries through this it's presented in the most surreal manner i've ever seen something but if you pay attention there is actually a complete story in here rather than some art house pictures that you have seen later years who may have been influenced by this and tried to do the same thing got so surreal to where you're like well that served no point whatsoever (laughs) (laughs) well I do know that uh, him and his co-writer, Charles Pena and his co-writer, when they were writing this movie, they wrote it in in typical exploitation fashion where every few pages they wanted that zinger. They wanted that super like I don't be it sleazy or be it scandalous or shocking kind of pop to it. So, you know how in traditional screenwriting in like horror films, like every 10 minutes or so, you're supposed to have a scare or you're supposed to have something happen. Pinion decided to up the ante every two pages there needed to be something, <laughs> something that was popping at all times in this movie. And it shows because this movie really moves along and there's always something that's happening. Now, you said that there's a story here, Mark. I would be very interested to have you and hear you. Tell my listeners, what is the plot of Red Spirit Lake? Well, I, I forgot some names, so you have to apologize. But there is a, a gentleman who really wants the property of Red Spirit Lake. He knows a bit of the history, historic past with witches and witchcraft, and there's power here. And so he muscles in to try to get the owner of Red Spirit Lake to sign over the property to him. But it fails. And she dies. Oh, no. How did she die? Well, we know how she died. But her niece, her only living relative, has uh, inherited this land and has come to Red Spirit Lake. And while here, she suddenly gets uh, these visions and starting to have things happen to her as she gets in touch with her true self and her true lineage of her family. And when the bad guy tries to muscle in on her, her past relatives come to help her protect her and a red spirit lake property. Good job, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I say, I say it like that because I think most people that would walk into this movie would be kind of bewildered in general, because there's not a lot of dialogue. Mm -mm. 
movie. It's mostly to- uh, told in pure cinema fashion. And um, it is edited in a way that it jumps back and forth in time a lot. And it can be confounding at moments. And I think it's a movie that that takes multiple watches to really like sink your teeth into. I know for this episode alone, I had to watch it a few times. Um, I'll admit this is the first time I've ever seen Red Spirit. Like this is one of those that I I know knew the name of Charles Pinion, obviously for a long time. I think anybody that's into underground cinema. Uh, like real true underground cinema will have heard of this. I mean, Nick Zed, of course, we've all sat and heard Nick Zed. I mean, he was very pervasive back in the 90s. I mean, all the way from the 70s, making all sorts of films. But this is the first time I've ever actually seen Red Spirit Lake. And the first time I watched it, uh, I was I liked it. I liked what it was doing. But I also at the same time, I was like, okay. I really need to watch that again because <laughs> my because it's a kind of movie where your mind kind of wanders and it gives you the opportunity for your mind to kind of wander because it's kind of dreamlike. And it's funny that you say that it had a lot of aspects that kind of tied it to Euro uh, sleaze or European horror films because it, it does have a lot of the same sensibilities. This is only a brisk, what, like hour and. 10 minutes long something and it still feels super dreamy and super all over it it is a movie that i mean it was a lot to take in on first few um andrew what are your general thoughts on red spirit lake well i think when i saw red spirit lake man it was like i'd already seen nick zed stuff and watched the current stuff which current did not make features he made shorts um this was surprisingly normal in terms of plot and structure compared to those things. It was actually kind of a relief. I'm like, Oh God, this is like a, just like a kind of a regular horror movie. Now, granted, you know, like you said, this has still got arty things and surreal things and odd. And, you know, Charles Pinion, he clearly identified more with like horror and like psychotronic and, you know, B movie stuff. And he he loved like it's obvious he loves stuff like Evil Dead and Herschel Gore and Lewis and all that. This because this movie's got like you know it's got gore, it's got um, like kink, it's got witchcraft, um, it's got aliens. I mean, this like a it's a kitchen sink movie, you know. So I was I remember just being very impressed with it and um, think it was also kind of sexy as well. Um, not so much in high definition, right, right. but on VHS it was. <laughs> now watching it on HCTV, a little a little more uh, details are revealed. But like, still, no. I I remember being. I remember thinking Charles Pinion was the most talented one. I think it's funny that you brought up you know the difference between watching it back in the day and watching it now. Now that we all have these super crisp you know HDTVs, they are ugly as fuck. <laughs> HDTVs. But, but some of it, some of it was okay though. And like, I just recently watched uh, Elliot, mm-hmm. which was uh, by Craig Jacobson and Cassandra Schiller, and uh, you know that thing. I I'm, I found myself almost wishing it hadn't been shot on VHS because of the production sure. value. You know, it's all those great makeups and everything. I was going like, oh man, you know, I I had trouble seeing things and making things out. But at the same time, it would not have had the eerie kind of quality that it does. And I think with all this shot on video stuff, especially like there's a real strange, almost borderline mm-hmm. disturbing quality that it's got in Red Spirit Lake. Like it spooks me still. 
I, I, every time I watch it, aspects of it really spook me. And I think the main thing that does, uh, honestly is, is, uh, the faces of everyone in the movie, everyone in red spirit, Lake has a very interesting yeah. look and a kind of a bizarre look. Yeah. And it, a lot of it reminds me of that old dreamlanders troop style where it's just all these individuals with separate personalities and very unique looks that are brought together. Cause like you said, every last character in this movie is so, so out there and so strange. Let's start with the beginning of the movie. The movie starts off with this woman who is supposed to be our lead character down the roads aunt that's shackled to a chair and being repeatedly beat up by a, a group of assailants and one man that's standing that is that is bald that is not speaking and another guy that reminds me of the dude and i know herschel gordon lewis fans will probably get this reference but the rest of everybody probably want um the guy who he totally reminded me of the guy who was the the detective in the gorgor girls (laughs) 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 but i'm guessing and please let me know if I'm correct here, because they don't really ever give much of a backstory to any of this. Now, was he supposed to be like a Satanist? I mean, he obviously knew that there were supernatural qualities to Red Spirit Lake, and there was power that was derived from witchcraft that was laying home there. Now, was he also somebody that was maybe a warlock or a Satanist or somebody that was attempting to tap into that power? Or, I mean, what was his character? The impression I got was that he was uh, a guy who had money, most likely due to his uh, shady dealings and such, who was into the occult and he knew the history of Spirit Lake and he wanted that secret of the witchcraft that was there. And so I think he was one of those type of like supposed to be like one of those rich guys who dabbles in the occult and he thinks this is going to be a source of major power for him to help him be top dog and such and and that's kind of the impression i got from him you know is that i don't think he actually did use magic but i think he thought that by acquiring spirit lake he might actually be able to finally tap into that i get the impression this guy's been trying for a while but he has not been able to and so now he's found spirit lake and so he thinks he has the opportunity to tap into that power um, not really knowing what he's actually dealing with. Yeah, it, it felt like the vast majority of the characters that are involved in this movie are spiritualists in some way that are that are mm-hmm. tapped to be it. But um, as you had said, there was the blonde guy who was really into, I guess, transcendental meditation and was in tuned with his with his aura and his energy. He was in tune with something. <laughs> He was in tune with getting blowjobs from ghosts yeah. is what he was in tune with. <laughs> uh, but everybody seemed to be tied to spirituality in some way, uh, some way with this. Like now that, that opening scene, they're beating up the ant in order to, you know, get her to sign the papers over for Red Spirit Lake. And she's just not down with it. So they just decide to off her and then comes in years later, her niece takes the the residence and almost immediately people start converging on this place and eventually it just starts snowballing where there's uh local dudes 
played by Pinion himself. I think wasn't was he was the guy. There's a demon. All oh, the demons are here. All oh, the demons are here. All oh, the demons are here. Oh, oh. sorry. So Mark obviously got very excited by a masturbation scene that went on in this. Movie. <laughs> that was, I think, him. <laughs> that was, was him. It was. Yeah, he's yeah. in all of his movies. Except, well, he's not an American mummy, but he's in the all the old ones. He plays lead characters. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, Mark, this is this is something I have to ask because through the course of the movie and in the beginning, it's very purveying as well, is is the sexuality that's involved in this movie is very in your face. And it kind of gravitates from being, on uh, one hand, very rapey to, on the other hand, sort of kind of really sensual. <laughs> and, and there's there's a real dichotomy between the male mindset and the female mindset in this movie. And that's what uh, of anything that happened in this movie was kind of like a war between the sexes that was going on. Um, oh, yeah. And Andrew, what did you feel about how gender and sexuality was played with in Red Spirit? Like, cause I think it's a really important aspect of the film. Well, you know, like uh, Red Spirit, like itself is just going to go very strong feminine power to it and a very strong feminine history. And, and they are not like hiding that there is a flashback scene that shows like, you know, a group of women, and uh, you're clearly all into magic and all friends with each other and some of them who are romantically involved then getting like, you know, raped and destroyed by men. And so there's this whole thing of Red Spirit Lake is almost like this, uh, you know, this outpost for a female sanctuary. And then, you know, that when it is eventually uh, invaded and constantly tried to, you know, be destroyed by men. And then, of course, uh her aunt there she is well you know richard kern grabs the breast of every woman in the movie but there's an arc to that because he gets his you know everything he does you <laughs> find out there's a setup for what is arguably this scene's like most controversial or most well-known scene involving him um but uh absolutely there's no question there's no question of that i mean that with the castration and all of that um, with the oogling that goes on, like every dude in this movie, you know, even the ones that are kind of heroic or whatever, they're just kind of a very little consequence um, compared to the women in it. Yeah, I I agree. It really had that strong uh, battle of the sexes and Red Spirit Lake definitely has a its roots in femininity rather than um, masculinity. And that really is prevalent when we see the flashbacks, we see uh, the ant by the tree, you know, all the spirits at Red Spirit Lake are female and they're strong spirits, actually. And they they take advantage uh, of the guy's weakness towards sex. They play with that. They do that on purpose. And what's interesting is even the women who aren't ghosts, we got the two females. We have the lead, the the niece, and then you have her friend. Um, Even when they are getting uh, abused, especially her friend, uh, she is like not sitting there whimpering and crying after it. She just lays into the guy rather than being what normally you would see portrayed as 
broken or crying or whatever she no she just tells him he's got a small dick and she's been fucked by better <laughs> uh, you know to the guy who's pretty much has raped her meanwhile our blonde who who does you know fight back she does also get violated but i don't know if it was the spirit's involvement or what but what ends up happening with her rapist she actually turns into a pleasurable thought of him castrating himself i mean she's she's kind of she's getting off on that and so yeah there's just this really strong feminine vibe throughout this that that is the strength of red spirit lake and you know woe be the guy who is there you know (laughs) who crosses them i mean yeah it's it's carried throughout this film Yeah, there's I think it's really portrayed well, not in just the sexual scenes, but the scenes that in which we are the dreamy sequences where Mm -hmm. where we see these repeated passages of um, the ancestors of the niece. Those scenes in which we see her having like these waking dreams of you know these women that are in a snowstorm and they're they're witches dancing nude and and it's set to this really dreamy music and stuff like this when women are portrayed in this film it's not necessarily how do i put this it is softer (laughs) And, and when the men come in all it is is sexuality is a weapon at all times and this is not done necessarily through dialogue at all in the movie. And this is what I like the most about Red Spirit Lake is that it it used imagery to portray ideas and thoughts and emotions in a way that communicated directly to the audience and, and made sense. Now, certain things may have happened, like aliens coming down and killing people and all this other crap that, that didn't necessarily... Uh, make a whole lick of sense but the the war between the men and the women in this movie was was very interestingly shot and how it was portrayed i i love the fact that all the women in the movie were were super powerful and never gave in to the leering rapey male gaze that was (laughs) in every single scene a man walked into they walked in like they owned the women, but of course they didn't <laughs> at any point. Like, let's talk about that one uh, scene that you had talked about uh, with giggles, Mark, where mm. Charles Pinion comes up to the house and he starts watching from outside uh, Marilyn as she does some aerobics in the house. And he proceeds to take his wee wee out and start playing with it. Mm -hmm. And after a while, she notices that he's doing this and he runs off scared like a little boy. Oh, and she's just like, get the fuck out of (laughs) here. You know, this whole mentality that that really the women aren't scared of these men at all. I mean, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. They Um, They aren't intimidated at all by the by by the guys. Well, you know. I could see because of Marilyn's one, uh, I guess that would be his boyfriend or whatnot, the the cross between uh, Prince and boy George guy. 
uh, you know, him. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I looked at him going, dude, he looks like the backup, backup keyboardist for Prince and the Revolution. I don't know uh, with that hair that he had. But in any case, uh, yeah, they, they're never intimidated. They're in control. Even with Marilyn, when uh, she has sex with her boyfriend, she's the dominant one. She's the one that pulls him out and says, hey, we're going to go for you know, a walk. She's the one that's on top of him and she, you know, in control. And yeah, at no time. And this is what struck me is at no time did the women seem weak or inferior to the guys in here. And in fact, they felt like they were the, the stronger ones, you know, the whole time, even when, even when the guys were attacking them, they still felt like the stronger character. Everybody thinks of underground, and this is this is why I'm I'm gearing up and actually will be in April uh, bringing back my sh- a, a show to We Live Entertainment, but it's going to be uh, We Live Entertainment Underground, where I'm going to be covering films like this on it on a popular channel because people don't really talk about these films. I think from a, an approach of an actual objective approach a lot of times they approach them because oh it's underground and they focus on the sex and the sleaze and oh this is just exploitation and that but at no time did i feel that this was exploitive at least to the women it it, it was it was handled well all the nudity was handled well even though i made a joke about the sweating uh you, you know uh the sexuality is handled specifically at no time did i feel like it was being there to be exploitive no i think you're nailing a big thing and a reason why i i walked away really liking it was the fact that it didn't look down on any of the sexuality it it looked at sexuality as something that was it was just a part of the people that were there especially i i think it didn't become really super apparent how just casual and laissez-faire they were about sexuality until their friends showed up at that cabin Mm-hmm. Yes, and you have the guy that just gets naked and goes out and does his meditation, and all and the the two of them decide to walk go off. Uh, the Maryland and the boyfriend you said that was the backup singer for Prince's band. They go out in the middle of the woods and screw. Um, that's where it becomes apparent that you know what this isn't just a straight uh, exploitation film where they're trying to look at and and point fingers at sexuality. They don't see this as anything outside of the realm of just normalcy. These are just people being sexual. It has nothing to do with trying to make this, I guess, tantalizing as jerk off material. I think that's a big designation for me when it comes to sexuality and exploitation films and in uh, film underground films like this is that you can always tell the male gaze you know the typical male gaze where this is supposed to make you want to pull your dick out and wank on it a little bit red spirit in the lake at no point did it feel like this was supposed to be a sexploitation film at least to me i don't know andrew did you do you see this as a sexploitation film no absolutely not and you know this is why this is why men um get angry uh, on the reviews of, of my movies that I make because, you know, the history of exploitation is, you know, there's money involved, there's film involved. Exploitation films, sexploitation, but they are made 
and even horror to, to a large degree, they're all made for the straight male audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Richard Kern and but but definitely Charles Pinion, these guys, if if Kern was doing anything with sexuality, he was following his own kink. He was exploring things, he was tearing it apart, he was being, you know what I mean? It was it was definitely not made to like get people off or whatever. And, or if it was just it was just for him, you know what I mean? But like right. with Pinion, he's not doing that at all. And the, the thing that I, I always bothers me about stuff like, you know, because not only is this like, you know, got aliens and, and, and gore and all that stuff, this is also like a revenge story because it has elements of like a, a trope of sex sexplo- or exploitation, which is the rape revenge film. But I'm always very, very particular about this thing that they, they make sure that the rape is violence, nothing to do with sex at all. It is violence. And so all of these men are violent in the film. The, the ones that rape are definitely committing acts of violence. There's nothing sexual about them. They're not shot in a way that's sexualizing it either, which is a really important distinction to make and why um, I had a problem with the, the I Spit on Your Grave remake, let's just say, because the way that the rape was filmed, I felt it was from a male gaze kind of thing. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is completely and totally wrong. You're missing the point here. You know, we don't do a romantic murder. <laughs> or not go, what is this thing you're doing? And so, all those things, all those things that have uh, rape and them feel violent, they do not feel sexual at all. But by that same turn, all the stuff that is sexual definitely has that feel to it. But also, there's nudity that has nothing to do with sex at all. Right. You know what I'm saying? And um, the scene where uh, the one guy is in the sauna before he turns into a crispy critter, um, the camera goes across his body when he's naked. If for no other reason, we don't know necessarily if Charles Pinion did that because he thought the guy was, you know, attractive and he wanted to do that. Or if he was just like, normally they would put a woman here and they'd go up and down her body in one of these. We're going to put a dude here. That would make men, the, the, the exploitation audience of yesteryear, that would make them so upset. Yeah, and it totally. continues to make them upset to not be catered to. But if these guys are going to do anything... It is to separate themselves from that and go their own route with it and take that stuff apart and subvert the expectations of those people. Red Spirit Lake is not for the days of the dead, bro. This is not your movie, you know? No, absolutely is not. And I, and this goes far beyond, you know, the format it's shot on and the the surrealness of the of the film it, it it goes into its core central theme in the mindset of its director and its creator is is that the the reason he he's been tied to this idea in this movement the short-lived movement of the cinema transgression is that the mindset of these people were kind of like the mindset of of we will keep bringing this back of John Waters when we kept talking about John Waters it was like these people were the underground. They were the people that they lived these lives where they were the outsiders. They were the people that this sort of thing was deemed by society as not normal, quote unquote, not normal, or was looked down upon or it was, um, or was debaucherous or is whatever. And in, in these films and, and in red spirit, Lake, it's not looked at as anything it does, it's not showcased as being a degenerate thing. It's just showcased as something like if somebody would have coffee. <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just how these people are. 
And that's what was really refreshing about this film is that it didn't feel at any point like it was looking down on its subjects. Um, even if some of the characterization of some of the, the characters uh, within it are kind of played camp and Charles Pinion's character, obviously is, is played camp is, is kind of a caricature of a, of a redneck for the most part, all of these characters are played as if they're supposed to just be normal people. And for me, for, for a film like this, I can, and this is something that, and I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but when this was released by um, something weird video, this was labeled as a sexy shocker. And I, I have read, and I also feel the same exact way that does a real uh, disservice to the film. Because I don't feel like this film was supposed to be, as we had said, it's not supposed to be a sexploitation film. I well, think no, it's, it's just, punk- yeah, it's a punk horror film. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's an dis- important distinction to make. And I'm glad that you kind of got into that because, like, you know, Charles Pinion comes from punk in Gainesville, Florida, which had an amazing punk scene in the 90s, all through the late 90s, but definitely the mid 90s around when these things were getting made. South Florida's awesome with the punk scene. And uh, I remember visiting there in 95 with our drummer, and I was just blown away by how great that was. And so, like, Twisted Issues, yeah, I don't think it's that great either. It's way too long. It's mostly like a lot of, there's live performance and music video, and there's barely a story. But what you get is a sense of, like, that that feeling of a punk scene. And the punks are not supposed to be exclusionary. And there's, you know, black people in it. There's women in it. So, you know, Charles Pena was encountering like queer and feminism and all this other stuff. And why, why would he make a, a regular sexploitation movie? Why would he stick to the rules? It just doesn't make any sense from, from a punk standpoint, you know? Absolutely. Um, Mark, I want to I want to kind of talk about it. Let's let's kind of move away from maybe some of the central core themes. Let's just look at some of the the filmmaking choices. If we're going to not label this as a sexploitation film, we're not going to label this as a straight exploitation film. And we're looking at this as more of kind of just a, a punk rock horror film. If there was any huge um, indication as to influences uh, in this film. What would you go for from the horror aspect for me? Well, no, I'll let you say this and then I'll kind of say my piece. What did you think of when you when you saw this? Like, did this remind you of any specific sort of like horror film uh, that you had seen before? Um, it's unique. So, I mean, there's elements in here of, of you know, supernatural horror, uh, especially with uh, the witches involved. Uh, I don't remember unfortunately right now any specifics but i've seen some other horror films too you know where you, you've got the past spirits coming back to visit or they're tied to a current you know uh, uh person and it, that that was evident in in a number of uh 80s horror films not just witchcraft <laughs> films but trigger don't um, talk about witchcraft you know, films on the podcast i'm sorry sorry no but i mean there were some of the other films during the 80s like i think was the one the guardian was it are you yeah, talking about the, the william peter blatty with the tree yeah 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 with the tree with the with the woman who was attached to the tree yeah. you, you know you know that kind of wiccan type stuff you know 
uh, in a way. And, and you have that in here as well. The, the nature horror, the, 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 where the part of witchcraft wasn't quite so focused on, you know, Ooh, cauldron toil and trouble type of thing, but the in touch with nature, uh, aspect of it. Um, but as far as, you know, influences of horror films, I see bits and pieces here and there. Unfortunately, I can't give, give prime examples, uh, at this time. Uh, but just that type of genre of film, especially you, you felt like when you say, oh, 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 it involves witches, people think, oh, spells and stuff. They're not really too much of that going on no. here, more spirit, supernatural type of, uh, actions going on in this film, you know? So. Yeah, supernatural horror, it has those elements definitely in it um, of that time period as well. The the late 80s supernatural horror, especially. Wow, that's interesting. Um, the Guardian, that's one wild fucking movie. <laughs> that's a really fucking wild ass movie. But I, I see where you're coming from with that. I think uh, for me, and I'll just keep going back to this, I think Pinion really showed a lot of his hand with euro horror and there's a few things like there's a lot of really saturated primary colors that are shown throughout this entire movie that are so bava-esque all over this movie i mean the the infamous fisting sequence <laughs> in which the, <laughs> the guy who who rapes uh our lead's friend and slits her throat and then she comes back to life as a zombie covered in blood or as just a dead spirit and decides to finger his butthole and shove a whole fist in there. And yeah, he doesn't survive. That is just showered in primary blues and reds and greens. And there are many, many sequences that could have come straight out of the Baba cinematography handbook. Um, that I personally just loved. It just gave it a really otherworldly feel. And there was also another movie that I it reminded me of was uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but one of the first movies Bjork was ever in called The Juniper Tree. It's very much about witchcraft, and it it tries to show in in the way that it's shown. It's a very slow paced movie, very atmospheric movie. But it tries to tie nature into um, kind of the supernatural and evil aspects of what's going on. Red Spirit Lake does this over and over and over again as a motif is showing the trees and showing wide shots of the environment just completely covered in snowfall and people dancing almost as if they're pagans or Wiccans uh, naked with nature. And these are all things that maybe lately in American cinema, they've come out via like movies like The Witch and stuff like this, but it are very much rooted in Euro horror and stuff like that. Andrew, when you see this as a horror film, like what are some of the things that you notice being a longtime horror fan? I think current or not current. I think Pinion just he clearly loves horror films and clearly likes like um I mean, I, I think of Evil Dead, like the original Sam Raimi Evil Dead and of Herschel Gordon Lewis's movies, because the the gore is just like very, very splattery, very bright, very, very matter of fact. But when the um, 
when the aliens are shown and stuff like that. I mean, that just seems to me like a very big something weird movie sort of influence to me. And um, but particularly uh, it is the redneck brother who has got the the aliens have implanted something right. inside of him. Right. He's got like this key in his forehead that looks like like a Charles Manson X or whatever, something that's burned in there. But we find out that he's actually got this like, yeah, like a for real, like this star under his skin. Whenever he's like getting murdery or having like an episode or the aliens are coming, I don't know what it starts like green goo just starts coming out of his head. It just seemed like a very, very uh, evil dead thing to do. And um, his Evil Dead influence, and there's even some like Peter Jackson influence, uh, really heavy in uh, American Mummy, which is the most the movie he made many many years later, and uh, about I guess like four years ago now. But it's it's clear that he likes that that you know I, I think he likes gore movies, like mm-hmm. old school gore movies. It's it's funny that you say it like like a Peter Jackson that that same kind of exuberance that is showcased in like early Peter Jackson, like that energy that's there. I think of anything, regardless of the amazing spa- practical effects and the editorial style that just doesn't let anything breathe at any point in early Peter Jackson. That energy yes. is all throughout this movie. Even at the points where it's just kind of breathing. And like I said, it's very Euro horror where it just is kind of surreal and kind of dreamy. There's still this kind of tautness to the film that is very much the same kind of tautness that is in that original Peter Jackson stuff. It's it's interesting. This is the kind of movie that I think lends itself to wanting to sit and talk about it because Everybody can come at it a different way and walk away with something entirely of their own. It's a very because of its nature of being a surreal film, your brain is going to wander, as I said, and just start going into different places. Like I, I totally wasn't thinking Evil Dead (laughs) at all, but I'm going to watch it again. I probably will. Were you thinking John Waters at any point when you were watching? Were you thinking John Waters? I mean. some of the broad performances or some of the, uh, the weird looking stuff or like even like how they show flies. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like you think of like in desperate living where um, Liz Renee's character is lying and there's you know, like a roach crawls across her ass. Um, there's a scene where the woman is naked. Uh, Amanda Collins in that uh, sauna and she just turns over and Mark noticed that she was quite sweaty. <laughs> Um, but the fly there's flies in there and it's not a story point. He's just like, Hey, there's flies. Yeah. You know, it just, it's there. And, and I remember when that fly scene hit, it's actually kind of surprising because it's in the middle of the dead winter. And all of a sudden I think it was, just, it was just there and he filmed it because flies yep. are gross. Right. I, I, it's, it's funny you say that I didn't really start getting the, the John waters feel in this movie until like i said before and i think the movie kind of does change a little bit once the friends come out to the cabin because the the people and it's not necessarily a straight up camp performances i don't think they're camp at all but the way they were reminded me a lot of how john waters troop would be and in particular the biggest sequence that i would point at that felt like it came out of maybe like a multiple maniacs or or desperate living was um her friend 
who ends up getting tied up and raped in one of the side uh, buildings uh, by this guy. The way she's talking to him as he's attempting to rape her reminds me of Mink Stole so much. Yes. <laughs> the entire time, because the whole time she he's trying to, you know, force his power on her. And she's just kind of like, oh, well, well, if you're going to do this, do this right, baby. I mean, why don't you tie it a little harder? This you're not really going for this right now, huh? Oh, she was not afraid of him. <laughs> you didn't feel she was in any real danger, no. except for the fact that, you know, this guy, he killed someone already. Right, right. It almost I was expecting her to just saying, yeah, slap me, baby. Come on, let's do this. <laughs> That's how it felt the entire fucking time. Um, so that kind of also takes uh, took a lot of the power of the rapiness out of the film for me which I really appreciate because I know you guys know I can't stand rape revenge movies for the most part because of what we had talked about before, because of the whole uncomfortable nature of the fact that really, yes, this is attempting to showcase a scene that's supposed to be about eventual female empowerment, but it's doing so in a way that's supposed to be supposed to sexualize this act. And in no way, did the one in Red Spirit Lake feel that way? It felt like she was totally deflating the entire situation. And it reminded me of early John Waters so much that at that point, I was just like, okay, I'm really into this movie now. <laughs> this, is, this is really fucking great. So um, in general, uh, Mark the Movie Man, we've kind of already talked about this. But when you when you look at Red Spirit Lake, were you surprised by um, not just its it, its content and how it showed for for we've been watching these shot on video films for a while and they're mostly fairly straightforward um, exploitation or horror films. Uh, and I know the last one we had watched that horrible gourmet zombie chef from hell gimmick. <laughs> That we were just like so thankful we never <laughs> we were hoping that we wouldn't have to watch another total pile of shit um, that now we we went back into kind of the more heady um, space of like a, a shattered dead or something like that. Are you surprised when when you see stuff like this come at you from the shot on video realm um, that's normally looked at as lesser cinema? Something that obviously looks like somebody had taken the time to kind of sit and make something that meant a little bit more than, well, we're just going to show a lot of boobies and people getting splattered all over the place. What what did you end up ultimately thinking of Red Spirit Lake and, you know, in the pantheon of this shot on video thing that we've been doing? I dug it and it was shot like a movie that was shot on film though it was shot on videotape, you know, the, the style and the things that were done in this film were things that you normally saw in, you know, films, uh, earlier films, uh, kind of late seventies, at least my impression from the ones that I've seen type of thing, uh, as far as the style and the aesthetic and, and angles and the surrealness going on, you know? So for me, it surprised me in a good way that this was one that was not, 
as you say, it wasn't so on the nose or direct at all. It was people you could tell thought and and just like with Shattered Dead that they were taking what they had and really trying to make a movie they wanted to make rather than let's grab a camera and just shoot what we can. This one actually, you know, it, it felt like some thought and, and we'll, well, let's see what we can do with this. You know, let, let's rather than just a static shot. Can we do this? Can we do superimposing over other images? Can we make this, you know, um, uh, the colors? Can we play with the lighting on set? Yo, boom, man, you got to get out of the shot, though. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I mean, you still have those elements in here, but. For what people characterize as underground cinema, oh, shot on film exploitation, here you have a film that goes into that genre technically because of the way it's shot, but in no way does it feel like many of its other films in that same genre. It felt like someone was trying to shoot what they could and they used what they had but they didn't let that limit them to the ideas that they were portraying on screen. They just made it work the best they could. Um, you know, it, it, I get the feeling that at no time they said, well, we can't do that. You know, I think it's more of, well, how can we get, you know, this scene colorful while she's fisting the guy in his ass? You know, <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, perspective. You know, but uh, I say jokingly, but... But I, I'm just saying that, that that these guys, unlike some of the others that we have seen, you, there was care and thought put out. And I just give props, one, to the two ladies who have to play the witches out in the snow. That had to be cold. They had boots, but still, damn. Um, and also, uh, I just want to add that... It, it, underground cinema has a bad reputation and rightly so because uh, in some respects because there is a lot of stuff out there that's just exploitive to be exploitive and shocking to be shocking but there is stuff out there done by filmmakers like this one who you could tell they really wanted to just make a film and they had this idea and they worked with what they had and it, it works so well they do it so well it was just handled differently than what you've seen in other films that didn't at all made me feel like it was exploitive. Um, and that's what surprised me the most, I think, with this, is that with a, a genre like this where you get those elements and, if you know, that reputation of exploitation, here we have plenty of sexuality going on, yet it never feels like it goes that route. And even works some humor well, into it, so. Part of it could be she wrote this movie with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, there's, there's the female perspective too. So, um, you can always tell a script when a, uh, and, and it, I'm just saying it's simple truth. You you can tell when there has been a, the touch of a woman, if you will, on a script, uh, especially when you get to female dialogue. So, well, surprisingly, there's not a whole hell of a lot of dialogue in this, but at the same time, this is something I wanted, I want to ask you to, uh, Andrew, I, I, a lot of what works in this movie, other than, you know, how it's portrays its characters is that he lets his actors kind of do their own thing a lot yeah. in this movie and trust that their and the energy they have and what they're bringing to the performances 
are going to shine through. And a lot of these actors just kind of fucking go for it. You dig that a lot about this? Yeah. I mean, that's my favorite thing about watching low budget and underground movies is like the kind of people you see in them are not going to be the kind of people that you see in indies or definitely not in Hollywood movies. They don't seem actory. They seem like a person that the director knows and is not putting in the movie because he thinks, you know, that's just his friend. He sees something in them that they either are or could be. And he wants to put that on the screen. And that's what I do. And I understand that. It's a really, really unique thing. And you're, you aren't going to get that. The only thing that I m- missed, because a lot of people didn't like American Mummy because it isn't what it seems like it would be on the cover. It's not the kind of movie that you would pick up in Walmart or watch on you know Netflix or something like that. It is pretty much a Charles Pinion movie, except for you don't get, uh, with one or two exceptions, you, you don't get those performances of those friends of his you see there you know they they look and they they seem like actors he gets a couple of them to, to do some really wild shit and i do like the movie but um that's my favorite thing about all underground film and a budget film like that is just like these performance styles and the confidence that a filmmaker like charles pinion would have in like you said just letting them do it because otherwise they are trying to please him and he's trying to make them into something else. And that's not what a director is supposed to do. You're supposed to pick the people you know are going to be great and just, you know, let them rip. Right. That's why you casted them. Yeah. You cast the right people for the right parts and let them do their thing. They're hired to do a job. You shouldn't have to sit and coach them through it. No, and some of these people are other filmmakers. I mean, Richard Kern, who's fantastic as that villain. Kern is a good director and has made some really intense movies. Um, but you also got Kimbra Fowler from the voluptuous horror of Karen Black. You've got uh, uh, Tessa mm-hmm. Hughes Freeland. Um, uh, who else was in this? Tommy Turner. Um, and and speaking of uh, of the the fisting or whatever, there's a, Kern did a movie called The Bitches. I think that was the name of it. And it's Charles Pinion, Amanda Collins, and one other woman. I'm not exactly her, sure who she is, but they take a strap on to a minute. <laughs> so there's a little reversal for you. That's what I, I got to be honest. First time. And we're going to we keep coming back to this scene, but it is obviously the biggest shocker moment of the film. I honestly thought she she was going to peg him. In that scene, the way that it was going, I'm like, ooh. Are we going to see a strap on? <laughs> happen no, at some no point? that that would kind of betray that that aesthetic that they're going for, which was the, you know, the women weren't going to behave like men, even though she was, right. you know, doing to him, you know, quote unquote, what what uh, she he did to her. Um, it was it was very different and very primal. I mean, it was arguably far more violent and irreversible. I mean, she did murder him. Right. So what a way to go, you know. It is the centerpiece of this movie. Like, you don't walk away from that scene and not just have it burned into your brain. I mean, it's not super graphic. Let's be honest. It's not like we're seeing. Well, what, do you, what do you need? You know, it's just like the uh, the, the meat hook in Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. He's like, we get the we get we got all the information we need. And no special effect would have. Yeah, the cutaway, the next cutaway when half of her arm is in blood. <laughs> I think we get the idea of what fucking happened here. Yeah. So, oh man. So when all is said and done, 
Andrew, what I obviously we know we you really really dig this one. I mean, if we, people were to start and try and jump into um, maybe some of this cinema of transgression, some of this underground, really really truly underground film, would you recommend a Red Spirit Lake as being that jumping off point, or would you point them in a different direction? I think this is a great place to start because if you're used to like regular horror movies or psychotronic stuff or any of that or even shot on video stuff this will give you um like a good entryway because it is has a plot that you can follow it's got a a really kind of um familiar storyline to it and um so it's sort of like it gets that 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 good greasing that you'll need to, to go in there and then it gives you some of the wild stuff and you're like whoa what the hell right but you're not whoa what the hell the whole time to the point where you're just like this is a shocking experience so if you are wanting to jump in and see like the freakiest ones possible or like the most transgressive ones no absolutely not but if you're like coming from the standpoint of low budget movies or shot on video horror or whatever else but you're looking to touch some of the edges of it or get a different experience this actually i would say yeah this is a great um this is a great gateway movie for that yeah i gotta agree with you completely um even though this is what the first time that i ever saw it i've subsequently there was one night where i watched it and i started it all over again immediately I really dig this movie (laughs) a lot. And obviously I have much more of a tolerance for this kind of stuff. And I I know a lot of the listeners that have been getting into these shot on video films that we've been doing on the show have been kind of looking for us to give them the, the gateway drug to getting into weirder and weirder and weirder stuff. I hear it all the time from the people that reach out and express their love for these episodes and red spirit lake is definitely i agree 100 percent, a great start off point for people that feel that they're ready to start really getting in to the underground of shot on video horror and um i can't gloat about it more than enough i mean it's thumb total thumbs up from me definitely go check it out if you can handle it if if you're somebody who is not turned off by art house cinema. And what, I, I feel that when I say that, there's always going to be somebody out there that doesn't understand what that means. And I always think of art house horror as cinema that uses cinema's inherent language, which is the visual medium as being the primary storytelling device. And at times that means that you aren't narratively being told explicitly through the character, their dialogue or their actions, what is going on. You have to kind of piece it together from what's being told to you visually. That to me is what art house cinema is and art house horror for the most part is. So if you're into that kind of thing, please, you'll get into this. You'll love it. Jump into it. Red spirit. Like if you're not into that, you need your baby horror then don't come to red spirit. Like you're not going to fucking like this, this movie at all, not at all, but uh, please go check this out. This is a really good one. So um, let's take a short break. We're going to listen to Daniel talk about some more bottom shelf movies.
Daniel, and you're looking at my bottom rack. <laughs> well, I'm Daniel. My name's Daniel, but my friends call me Daniel. But I, you people know this by now. Well, you people, but I mean, y'all are my friends. We're all friends here, and who knows? Maybe we have some new people, so you have no idea who I am or what I'm blathering about. I like to pick movies off of the bottom shelf at Walmart. Uh, this time, I, well, this time, lately, I have found myself on Amazon Prime enjoying is basically like a digital bottom shelf. Now, the thing is, I don't do this to insult the movies or anything like that. If it's a good movie, it's a good movie. If it's a bad movie, it's a bad movie. I mean, it is what it is. Budget doesn't matter. A lot of times, I prefer independent film. I just, I get tired of all the big budgets and stuff like that. And the, the watered-down stories, you find a lot better stories and a lot more integrity the lower on the, <laughs> on the DVD shelf that you go. <laughs> so... I make it no surprise. No, I make no qualms. I am a huge Full Moon fan, and I am also a huge Asylum fan. So I've got a doozy for us to talk about today. <laughs> I watched Alien Convergence. That's right. From 2017, Alien Convergence, directed by Rob I guess it's Palatina, or it might be Payatina, not sure, right, written, righted by, this here's righted by, written by Mark Gottlieb, the screenplay was written by him, and this is an Asylum film, that I mentioned this was by the Asylum, <laughs> Alien Convergence, the cover alone is worth the price of admission, you have this really cool, almost like, all right, before I get into this, I will talk about this and probably things that I say could be construed as not very flattering. I want you to understand. I love these films. I love the asylum. Plus, they know what this is. So, I mean, we get all that out of the way. <laughs> the cover looks almost like some stock footage you'd get on the Unity or Unreal uh, Marketplace that they took and photoshopped in there. And then we got some, looks like F-15 Tomcats uh, firing laser missiles at them or whatever from the on the cover. And, of course, it says, Alien Convergence, we have visitors. This conveniently hit the shelf. I say conveniently, I want to think this hit the shelf because I saw this sucker getting advertised in places. I think it hit the shelf right around the time Alien Covenant came out naturally. I mean, look at the font on the movie Alien and then under it Convergence and just draw your conclusions. The Asylum is known for their mockbusters like this. So, I mean, it is what it is. You <laughs> so just get on with the story if there is one. All right. Let me preface it by saying this. You know how, and I haven't done this in years because I haven't had cable in years, but when I had cable years ago, not to sound like a hipster, whenever I'd go, you know, work on maybe some music or work on some writing, I'd just turn the TV on for some background noise. Well, if it was Sunday or a holiday, I'd turn it on sci-fi because I love those crappy movies that sci-fi would play. This is one of those <laughs> movies that sci-fi would play. It's it's not really that good. The concept is fantastic. I'll get to that in a second. But the story is is that meteors hit Earth and there's monsters in them. And they the monsters look like <laughs> stock Unreal or Unity Marketplace monsters that come out of the ground. 
And I can tell you, it's just on the whole, I'm kind of drawing a blank because basically the story is nonsensical. I mean, this Atlantic Rim was more coherent than this one. I, I have to say that, a positive thing about Atlantic Rim. So, I mean, this one was just, uh the meteors fall, so we've got the monster, the aliens that are floating around, and I forget what they feed on. Probably something stupid, if I remember right. It doesn't matter. The concept, how they fight the aliens, though, I thought was really cool. We haven't really seen this much at all. I'm trying to think back of when we did. There was there used to be a TV show on Fox called Manta, and uh, I think there was an 80s movie called Manborg with the dude in the wheelchair. What this is, you have a team of people, and you can't tell whenever the movie first kicks off, but you think one or two might be in the military. Obviously, someone driving the the F, I, I guess, F-14. It's an F-15-something plane, like Maverick's plane from Top Gun. So they're flying it, and you hear the people talking and chatting, and they're talking about something about their neural interface and do this or do that and you know, don't use your hand and stuff. They're testing. Obviously, they're testing. You think they're testing the planes out. When they land, you find out that they're testing a neural interface for disabled veterans. And that is a concept that has not been explored. And, I mean, I got to give a round of applause for that. First of all, just the, it's not being pandering. I think it's incredibly unique, and this hasn't been studied before. You have a team, and that's the asylum, so it's something ludicrous, you know, like they're this lone team of whatever, you know, disabled veterans out testing a product. They're working on a neural interface for pilots to both, you know, be able to fly planes if they are disabled or to not even have to worry about physically being in the planes themselves. You find the motivation behind this with the main character because her dad is in a wheelchair too. The acting is just off. Just, yeah, we won't even go into that. Just, it's an asylum movie. Look, you know what you're getting into, all right? So the fact that you're listening to this, I mean, it's, I've kind of preached to the choir. I also consider it a harbinger. Think of it as a warning because if you go out and turn this movie on, you will hear my voice. Anyway, back to the unique story elements of it. That hasn't been done before, and I thought it was awesome. You have somebody missing a leg, and I can't tell. This is what I haven't looked into it and didn't know if they haven't or, you know, if I just wasn't paying attention clearly enough. But it looks, some of it looks authentic. So, like, you got a dude missing a leg with an artificial leg. I think his might have been real. But then you have other people who are acting pretty darn well if they are. Like, one guy is a quadriplegic like he is numb from the waist down, neck down, waist down. <laughs> He's numb from the neck down, opposite of me, because I'm from the neck up. I'm completely numb. He's numb from the neck down, and he's flying a plane. And he even makes jokes and stuff, too. But, again, it's never, it nothing insulting. It's nothing uncomfortable. If <laughs> For some people, it might be. If you haven't ever normally associated with somebody with a physical handicap, or even a mental handicap, it makes people uncomfortable. Then they get real crazy, and you know, whenever you talk about, yeah, you're handicapped, oh, he's handicapped, and stuff like that, you know, the horrible H word, but look, it is what it is, and these people are champions, and I like this movie just for that concept alone. It's a shame that the rest of the movie is a big steaming turd, but no, God, that was mean. 
<laughs> the concept is really cool. The execution, not so much. It's you got aliens that have landed for some reason or another. And like I said, I forget what they were trying to eat. It wasn't important. I mean, I think they were drinking like the water or something and they get bigger. And so you got to go and stop the aliens. And it, it's an asylum movie. You already know what it is. It's fun. Okay, so even if it's not going to get an Oscar, like a Best Picture Oscar nod or anything, the movie is fun, mission accomplished. The Asylum at this point, everybody loves talking about how, you know, they oh, I can't believe they made another one. Stuff. Haven't you learned by now? They obviously know what they're doing. I mean, this these people are professionals at what they do. They can do good stuff. Look at Z Nation. They can make some really good movies. <laughs> they can make some other movies too. <laughs> this is one of those other movies, but it's alien convergence. Just the story idea alone. I thought it was really cool. It almost plays off like one of those early to mid nineties, Sunday morning, crappy Canadian TV shows that would come on this. I don't know. I can't even remember the names of some of them. Sheena, I think was one of them, like the little jungle chick. Uh, oh, that uh, Cobra that had Michael Dudikoff. He was in, that's another one of those crappy Sunday morning TV shows that I'm talking about. This kind of plays off <laughs> like one of those. The camera work is the camera work. Um, <laughs> the setting is in the California desert or wherever. The, I think the asylum's like in Utah. So it's in a desert area. You've seen these deserts before. Nothing new there. Uh, good camera work. The sound design when it's unique, it's really cool. There's still a lot of stock sound effects and stuff. That's just, I mean, on the whole, I, even I have to say, this isn't one of the better asylum pictures. I've seen them, you know, spend a lot of time with some other pictures and this one, unfortunately was not as asylum-y as the other, as other asylum pictures. However, it was enjoyable. I will say that it was fun. Made me chuckle at a couple of parts, made me roll my eyes. And the damn thing felt like it was at least six hours long. Comes in at a comfortable one hour and 27 minutes. It's a little much, but I can deal with it. That's fine. And uh, all in all, I mean, if you got Amazon prime, <laughs> turn it on, just have it in the background or have some friends over, you know, drink you some beers, eat you some chips and watch it and laugh at it. It's a wonderful if you've got a if you're on a sunday sitting around on sunday and you know it's like man you know i'd like to watch a shitty movie and then your other friends are like man that's a good idea we need to watch this a shitty movie this is good for a shitty movie sunday alien convergence from the asylum it's available on amazon prime probably on dvd if you have nothing else to do with your money and that's that so this has been another episode of looking at my bottom rack, the uh, bottom rack for your top shelf lifestyle. So anyway, my name is Daniel and thanks a lot for listening. Catch you later. This is the portion of the show where my guests shamelessly show the fuck out of you, Mr. Mark, the movie man. Show my audience. Specialmarkproductions.com for all your movie man needs. You can go there. There's a link there for my YouTube channel. You can find me on the Twitters at Specialmark Pro, Instagram, Specialmark Prod. 
yeah, but uh, the uh, specialartproductions.com website is kind of the main hub of where I do things. And I've got some things in the fire that I haven't done some reviews in a couple of weeks, but I got some things going. But we do have on the channel right now going on uh, for my Spoiler Room podcast, which you can find the episodes there and on iTunes. Uh, the Spoiler Room podcast. We're doing Godzilla Month. So, yeah, uh, check it out. Mr. Gonzarific. Hey, everybody. Hey, so my friends and I here in Athens, Georgia, for the past many, many, many years, make our own underground movies. And uh, if you want to watch some of them, um, you can go to Amazon.com slash V, as in vagina, slash Gonzorific, G-O-N-Z-O-R-I-F-F-I-C. You can watch a bunch of them and just, you know, enjoy your damn self, why don't you? And if you are the into the physical media, want to buy some copies of films where you can get the commentaries and the gag reels and the extra short movies and all that other junk, go to gonzorific.com, man. That's where you find me and you'll be get, getting them from me. It's very important to support underground cinema, folks. And if you're fans of... Astro Radio Z, your fans of anything that we've all done, please get out there. You have no excuse now to not go and watch a ton of Gonzarific films. They're all on fucking Amazon Prime. A lot of them. A lot of them. I actually look. Yeah, the rest, the rest, the the ones that won't pass the quality muster, <laughs> the, the, the QC, those are all on YouTube. But I, I've got, I think, two in the pink from 2006 is the only one that hasn't made it to the web in some form or fashion yet go check that stuff out dudes you're gonna love them just do it and until next time take it easy and keep listening to astro Razy. you can find astro radio z on itunes stitcher tune in google play YouTube, and anywhere podcasts are found. Please, help us by subscribing, rating the show, and giving us a review. It helps us get the show out to more listeners. Also, if you would like to hear more of the show and be a more active participant, Join the Astro Radio Z Facebook group and page, and join the Patreon. For only one dollar a month, you get bonus episodes. Thank you for listening. See you next week, Astro Zombies. Zombies.